You're listening to a Stranger podcast. www.thestranger.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Hey, everybody, welcome to the podcast. My name is Dan Savage, and of course, this is the Savage Lovecast, the once-a-week outlawed version of my sex advice column, Savage Love. The way this works, if you're a new listener, uh, folks call up, record a question, I record an answer, sometimes I call them back, we have a little chat. 206-201-2720 is the number if you'd like to record a question for a future podcast, and I'm wheezing, and I'm sorry about that, there's nothing that can be done about that, because I'm becoming increasingly allergic to the stinky dreadlocks on the heads of the tech savvy at rescue. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash savage right now for details. And uh, I wanted to know if I'm addicted to girls uh, in the sense, or addicted to girlfriends in the sense that I seem to always have to have one. At least that's what my friends tell me. Uh, I've been in probably 10 relationships that have lasted at least a year or two each, um, and I'm not that old. And uh, I have to basically just have to go from one to the other. I just got out of one that was two years. Uh, basically, the sex just fell off by the end. I just We weren't that attracted to one another. So then, of course, as soon as that one ended, I jumped into a new one where the sex was crazy, it was constant, it was multiple times a day, uh, and then that ended in two months, um, and now I'm on the warpath again, looking for another girlfriend as quickly as possible, and um, doing ridiculous things in order to achieve that goal. Um, I have a little bit of regret after a weekend of you know boozing and, and uh, dating whoever I can find, essentially, but... Usually it wears off quick enough to, you know, dive right back in. And uh, I do think it's healthier for me to actually have a girlfriend because I don't do things like go crazy and go nuts and get trashed and hook up with whoever I can when I do have a girlfriend because I usually don't cheat in that sense. But with all my friends telling me things like I have to, you know, get in touch with myself and I have to be alone for a while before I, you know, can have another real healthy relationship. I don't know if I believe in that because I've had a lot of plenty healthy relationships that have gone quite a while. So anyway, um, what do you think about this whole concept that I should wait a little while? Um, I, it probably will drive me nuts, honestly, to, to not, to be alone for a while. So maybe I'm answering my own question. Who knows? I usually don't cheat. Those are the kind of, those are the four magic words that every girl wants to hear uh, from a potential boyfriend. I usually don't cheat. I haven't murdered anyone in ages. Um, I have refrained from cannibalism now for weeks. Uh, when all your friends are telling you X, but you believe Y, uh, either everyone in your life is crazy or you're crazy. Uh, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with what you're doing. You know, it sounds like you're young and you're out there and you're dating. And every relationship, as I like to say, that you're going to be in is going to fail until one doesn't. And you just haven't perhaps landed in that relationship yet. However, if your friends who are there 
observing and scrutinizing and, you know, watching your dating progress and perhaps having to deal with the fallout over and over and over again, if they all believe that perhaps you're making the same mistakes over and over again, choosing the same wrong person in different guises over and over again, you might want to take the break that they're recommending that you take and think about who you've been sleeping with, think about who you're attracted to, and be a bit more discerning and discriminating about the next girl uh, that you decide to honor with your presence and your superpower, your amazing ability to usually refrain from cheating when you're involved uh, in a relationship. And then see where it, see what happens at the end of that little break. Having said you should take what your friends uh, said at face value, uh, I do want to you know, throw out a caveat and contradict myself because it's what I do best. Finding fault is something friends do. It's something we want our friends to do because we don't always have... Uh, a, you know, totally true and accurate uh, picture of ourselves or perspective on ourselves. Uh, and sometimes the people closest to us who are around us, who are watching us, uh, have more insight into where we're at and how we're flailing around at any given moment than we may have uh, ourselves. Um, however, knowing that the friends find fault, that's what they do. They scrutinize your behavior. They find fault. Um, and they tear you down a little bit because, as Asker Wilde said, uh, it's not enough that I succeed. All my friends must fail. Um, you may reach a point after you do a little bit of self-scrutiny uh, and take this little break where you decide that all your friends are wrong. And they may all be wrong. Uh, because you may be one of those guys who's not suited for an LTR ever, but you're a great short-term boyfriend. You're gr- and there's a lot of girls out there who aren't suited for LTRs. And there are a lot of people out there who are happiest when they're being romanced, when they're getting into a new relationship. And those people, instead of marrying somebody and tormenting them all their lives... Uh, or divorcing and marrying and divorcing and marrying and divorcing, are better off being serial monogamous, serial daters, uh, players, whatever you want to call them. You might realize at the end of your self-scrutiny period, not that you need to pick out a different girl, someone you can spend your life with, you know, the, the only person you'll ever see naked again for the rest of your life. You may realize after that period of self-scrutiny that you've been picking the right girls because what you want is exactly what you've been doing. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm an 18-year-old female in my first year of university, and my question has to do with my boyfriend, my mother, my paranoia, and my self-induced guilt trips. I've been in a relationship with this guy for almost two years now. Um, He's not my first boyfriend, but he is the first person I've been with longer than a few months, and he's the first person I've ever been sexually active with. Uh, He did start a few, like, years earlier than me, so he's got more experience there, but anyway... Um, I'm away at university, if you can call it that. It's like an hour's drive, um, living in residence, and he's taking the year off to save up for his own post-secondary. We see each other pretty much every weekend. Um, I love him to death, and despite a few issues here and there, I'm very happy with him, and the sex is great. It's kinky, it's frequent, and I'm almost always satisfied in one way or another by the end of it. Um, The problem I'm having right now is a huge tug of war between him and my mom. We both want to move in together next year. She's not really liking that too much. She hasn't liked him since a bad spell about a year ago when I was caught lying about spending the night at his place. Like, technically it was his mom's, but, you know, whatever. And it did end up with her coming and getting me at 1 a.m., which was really embarrassing. Um, Since there's no way I could have possibly come up with something so deceitful on my own, every awful, bad, horrible thing I've ever done since then has been his fault. Every stupid little teenage lie, every time I've had a problem with like a friend or family or her especially, all comes down to his horrible influence. Um, She doesn't want us to move in together and has said that she will withdraw all support because she thinks it's getting too serious too fast, which I can understand. I mean, I'd only be 19 when I do move in with him. 
but um, she's afraid that this kind of commitment is going to hold me back from achieving all sorts of great things and ending up in the same place she was, engaged at 19, married at 21, and divorced 10 years later. She seems to think I need to date more guys, be single for a while, and basically just get rid of my boyfriend. I personally am fine where I am and can see myself with him for like longer, but I realize you know, that life happens and I'm not going to hold on to something that it starts to unravel or go downhill. I'm an easily guilted person when it comes down to it, really, and so when she dumps on him, I get the urge to tell my boyfriend, you know, fuck off, no, I'm not moving in with you, and all the rest of it. When I talk to him about it, and like a couple days later, if I'm just, you know, thinking about it on my own, no outside influence, I still feel like telling her to shove it, you know, carrying on with my plans to move in with him, continue my education, and just see what happens. Um, so we go through the puppy love stages, you know, here and there where we talk about like years into the future, but for the most part, it's a lighthearted conversation. He does seem more serious about it, but as far as I'm concerned, if I am living with him in a year and things don't work out down the line, pipe dreams and, you know, like warm fuzzies from the past aren't going to stop me from doing what I have to do to make myself happy in the end. Um, to wrap this up, I guess, uh, uh, am I thinking about this way too much? Should I just go along with school and life and see what happens, stop worrying until I have to? Um, Am I being too paranoid or not paranoid enough? Am I being too naive about all this? And is 19 way too young to move out, as my mom thinks? Or is she just biased against him for, you know, like corrupting her daughter? You're going to let mom pay. You're going to have to let mom have her say. Mom is paying for your education. If she's paying for your housing, if she's paying for your living expenses, she has some control over you. She has some levers, some power that she can exercise just to threaten to cut you off. If you can put yourself through school, you can make your own decisions. Uh, There are worse things than staying on campus, staying in the dorms, sneaking around a little bit behind mom's back uh, to get your freak on with your boyfriend. Um, There are worse things than uh, delaying or deferring the moving in together. You are just 19. Uh, And are you 19 or were you 18? No, you're 18 which means when mom caught you on that overnight at his house uh, against her wishes, you were 17 and perhaps a junior in high school. So maybe mom has a right to some of the lingering anxiety or resentment or concern uh, if this guy was stooping a high school junior when he's in college because you say he's going into grad school, which means when you were 17 years old, sleeping at his house under his mother's watchful eye, uh, and you were in high school, he was an adult, fully grown man. Like, her resentment, her concern is not misplaced. Uh, this relationship, if it lasts, will outlive your mother's concern, doubts, resentments, anger, all her issues. But you'll have to give it some time. You know, you guys got off on the wrong foot, it sounds like, at the beginning, which you minimize in your call. And your mother has her own concerns because of her own life story. And the only way you can assuage those concerns is perhaps to defer to your mom and say, I think I'm ready to move in with him, but you know what, you're paying for everything and I'm not going to go to the mattresses over this, so we'll wait because I'm in love with him and we'll be, you know, it's true love, mom. We can move in now or two years later or four years later because we'll still be together. And then if in four years you're still together, you should be able to go to your mom and say, look, I'm 24, I'm 23. It's for real. Accept him, however messy it was at the start. And she may be inclined to do so, but you'll be in a position then where your education will have been paid for and you'll be able to tell her to fuck off without risking your future, or this relationship will be over and all of this will be moved and you will look back on this podcast and laugh. Hi, Dan. This is Abby, and um, I am a new listener to the podcast. So 
forgive me if this is really old, but um, a while back you gave a caller some advice about a friend who um, who he advised not to um, date or marry, and you said something along the lines of they're already in couples counseling and they're not even married. That's a really bad sign, and I wanted you to elaborate a little bit on that. Um, my fiancé and I are currently in couples ca- counseling, um, and we're planning on getting married. We're in couples counseling mostly because I, he told me that he cheated on me a few months back. And so, I don't know, I I, I think things are going to work out between us, and I'm really hopeful. But I just wanted to know if you had any advice about whether or not I am wasting my time and this is a doomed-to-failure relationship. There's so many things to talk about here. Uh, you don't give a lot of details, and I can't reach you on the phone, which is too bad. Uh, he cheated on you, uh, and you're engaged to him. Did he cheat on you while you were engaged? Did he, or are you defining cheating down? Are you defining adultery down? Were you just dating and thinking about making a more serious commitment, and he banged somebody else? I do think the time in your life to get it out of your system, to sell those wild oats, is before you march down the aisle, uh, not after. And... We have to, you know, just like murder charges, uh, there are degrees. We can look at adultery and consider it by degrees. Uh, It's a much more serious offense, I think, to cheat on someone after you've made a big formal commitment to them than it is to cheat on them, quote-unquote, cheat on them, while you're still dating and testing the waters and thinking about your options, including fucking other people. You know, violating a promise versus violating a vow versus violating a commitment, these are all different degrees. So if this is something you can hammer out with that therapist, their counselor, that's not necessarily bad. You know, I don't think that, you know, a couple that's not yet married who are in, you know, who are going to see a couple's counselor so they can, with the help of a third party, resolve some issues, resolve some tensions, come to some understandings. It might be particularly helpful if one of the partners, uh, you know, grew up in a situation where there was no, you know, fair fighting and people aren't, you know, that partner is particularly rational when it comes to resolving conflict. Having somebody in the room whose job it is is to help rationally resolve conflict isn't necessarily a bad idea. However, I am of the opinion that if your relationship is just getting off the ground, you know, you've been dating for five or six months, and you've already hit some crisis stage where you're rushing off to couples counseling, that that's a bad sign. But I do think that in general... Uh, what you want out of somebody you commit to for life, for marriage, at the altar, is someone who the relationship involves a bit of sort of effortless pleasure, that you enjoy spending time together, that it's easy to be together, not that it's this constant fucking detente Russia and the United States and the 60s, 70s, 80s summit meeting crap. That's not a relationship, you know, that's... That's the UN. We have all we all have friends whose relationship is basically a never-ending series of summits and conferences and sit-downs and you know red telephones under glass domes on desks ringing in the middle of the night. And those are the people I think I mean when I say uh, if you're in couples counseling in the first year before you marry, that maybe it's a sign you shouldn't be together uh, at all. You have to make that call though. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like the Savage Lovecast. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash savage to get a free audiobook download of your choice 
when you sign up today. One of those 35,000 titles at audible.com right now is Sarah Vowell's new book, The Wordy Shipmates. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Sarah Vowell from This American Life. She's on The Daily Show this week. Uh, Wordy Shipmates looks hilarious, and I am going to buy it or download it and read it or listen to it myself. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash savage for your free audiobook today. Hi, Dan. I have a question for you. I'm a 33-year-old gay male, but I kind of have these fucked up friends that he's dating a guy who's majorly in the closet, but he's a florist. So how does that work? Or dating somebody who's on crack, who's basically a stalker or a heroin addict. And I want to be able to tell them, it's like, look, you need to, like, stop this. But I don't know how to tell you, like, I love him. But that's bullshit. Like, how can you love somebody who, like, causes you so much problems and every female friend that I have, if a guy treated her like that, would call the police, get a restraining order. And I'm like, call the police and get a... No, but, you know, no. So I'm I'm just at odds and ends as what to do. All right, two things. You say that all your friends are fucked up, and I'm just wondering if all your friends can say the same thing about all of their friends, if you follow. <laughs> Secondly, you know, people who construct their private lives or sex lives or dating lives or romantic lives or love lives in such a way that they involve tons of tragedy and drama and the existential angst of it all because, oh my God, I'm dating this guy, he's so terrible for me, but I love him. You know, drama queens can't be drama queens without audiences. If there's no one there to witness, if there's no one there to applaud, if there's no one there to, you know, watch your death scene or watch you collapse in the sofa in tears, uh, it's hard to be a very successful drama queen. Sometimes the best course of uh, action when you find yourself surrounded by people or just have one person in your life who's constantly monopolizing your time with their tales of woe is just to refuse to be that audience member. Stop enabling the drama queen to be the drama queen. Stop giving them an incentive to date fuck-ups by thinking that you're going to be there to help pick up the pieces or to watch their fucking tragic love scenes when they unfold and be the audience that they need to be a drama queen at all. Just walk away. If you have a friend who's dating an asshole who's constantly complaining to you about it, you say, you know what? You're dating an asshole. You need to dump him. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I'm not interested. You know how I feel. He's a jerk. He's bad. He's a drug addict. Whatever. Get him out of your life. And when you get him out of your life, we can talk about your love life again. Until then, you know what I think. And I'm done talking about it. done hearing about it. That's the strategy that you should employ with your drama queen friends and their bullshit relationships. However, once again, I would like to say, you know, all your friends are fucked up. I wonder if your friends can say the same thing about all their friends. Hi, Dan and Tech Savvy Youth. I I don't think an unusual problem, but I'm going to talk about it anyways um, to see if other people feel the same way and if you have any insight. Um, Sometimes when... I masturbate to pornography. Uh, I really enjoy it at the time, super turned on. But the moment that I come, I just feel totally repulsed and kind of have to turn it off. And I'm satisfied by the orgasm, but not at all satisfied by the means. 
And I've never felt this way when I've orgasmed with a man during sex, which I do all the time and totally enjoy it. So I was wondering if this is something you've come across before. So it sounds like I got you in an echoey stairwell. You did get me an echoey stairwell, indeed. Because you're at work, you said? I am at work, yes. Uh, And seeing as you're a consumer of pornography, I hope and pray that you do not work with small children. No, I say just act like small children. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For the record, I don't believe that people who consume pornography should be banned from working with small children. Uh, Sometimes I think those things go together very well. All right. That's probably all that gets them through the day. Yeah, totally. Um, You need a little adult time at the end of the day. Exactly. Here's why porn, I think, is leaving you emotionally cold at that moment after you have an orgasm. It's the strangest thing because I'm this, like, very sexual being and I love orgasming with men and by myself and whatever. But, yeah, right after porn, porn that I really enjoy, I just feel cold. Yeah, totally empty and kind of repulsed by it. Either you have some, you know, unresolved conflict about pornography, which is boring, uh, and yeah, I, I actually is, don't that's, think that's the problem. No, I'm really not boring at all. No, that's no, I, I think boring that's boring. problem for me to have, yeah. I'm not saying you're boring. I think that explanation is too easy and boring. Uh, Agreed. What I think is probably happening is, you know, when you have an orgasm, there is sort of this receding of desire, and you do kind of pull out of the moment sexually. Yeah. And when you're with a partner, they know you came, and they can adjust what they're doing, and they can fit themselves to your new mood instantaneously and really provide, you know, the care that you require at that moment. Porn can't cuddle. Exactly. Porn can't. Porn's not watching you come and going, all right, I need to ease up. And and maybe now we just need to roll around and talk for a minute and kiss and and be cozy. Porn won't do that. So porn's not meeting it at that moment. Porn isn't meeting your emotional needs. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I've never actually thought about it that way before. But how do you explain that when I'm not consuming porn, just, you know, whatever, on my own, just masturbating, why do I not get that feeling afterwards? Because... This isn't isn't about masturbating. Right, no, I'm not saying it's about masturbating. The minute you come when you're watching... Porn. Do you turn the porn off? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You leap up and hit hit the off button. Sure. Just because when, I don't, I don't really want to look at it anymore. It's, it's nothing that it stimulates me in any way right. after the orgasm. Right. Hmm. But when you're masturbating and you're alone and you're just playing with mental images that you also turn off after you come, you don't have this feeling of revulsion. No. No. Just, dot dot dot. Or no for real. No for real. No for real. It's, it's just very. It's like a very strange thing to articulate because it's not some kind of revulsion that implies any kind of shame over the orgasm or that I'm ashamed that this brought me to the apex of sexual desire. But it's just, um, I, re- I think I'm just coming to terms afterwards with the fact that like, these aren't real people. These aren't people who are giving me pleasure. Mm-hmm. If that makes I'm not being very articulate about this problem. Well, maybe, but, what, um, maybe what it is is, you know, when you're with a partner, it's about you and your emotional needs and it's real and it's tactile. And when you're totally in your fantasy head, when you you know you just lay, lay back and close your eyes and masturbate mm-hmm. and unspool a memory or a fantasy, you know, for future uh, in action, it's about you and you're the center of it, and it's inward and outward directed at the same time. But when you're consuming porn, you're really projecting yourself out. 
That's so true. I didn't even think about that. But when I'm just masturbating, I'm always thinking about something I've done, with something, someone I know, or someone who's in my life, or used to be. And of those, uh, or, of those or, three things. I always, I, I always fantasize about people I know. I'm not the kind of girl who like, fantasizes about fucking Brad Pitt or something. Only you know? with their written permission. Yeah, you're think about those three permission. modes of orgasm. You know, you're with somebody else. Uh, it's inward and out directed. It's about you. You're you're the center of it. It's uh, completely under your emotional control. You masturbate to mental images and a fantasy and spooling in your head. It's really about you. You're the center of it. And, and in both of those situations, you can you know as soon as you have the orgasm, you can like pull out of it. You can recede. It also doesn't communicate to you maybe subconsciously any deficiency, whereas porn may seem like a crutch at certain moments, where the instant you come, you know, you're not able to recede back into yourself, and there it is staring at you across the room, and you're like, oh my god, I can't believe I needed that. Yeah. And maybe you, know maybe I, you should look yeah. at the fact that your orgasms when you masturbate to the fantasy and spooling in your head, are they superior? Oh, definitely. So, porn is providing you with, you know, an outward-directed, other-centered orgasm that is inferior to the orgasms you can provide yourself with your own fantasies. Maybe, maybe the disgust is your your brain saying we could have had a better orgasm if you just laid back and shut your eyes. Maybe we don't want. Yeah, I guess. But when I the porn that I do find in the moment, I fully enjoy it. That's what's so bizarre. I have the type of porn I like and where I like to find it, and I like watching it. It's just the, it's just that moment something switches in my head. Well. So it's, it's pretty bizarre. What I'm thinking now must be the solution, and I guess I, this is probably your job to tell me this, but you can tell me if it's a good idea, is that I probably just have to, like, make a video or something when I'm having sex <laughs> with someone I like. That would, be a good, that, right? that would be a good way to test what's actually going on. Yeah. Take yourself into your own lab rat there. Yeah, make myself into the old, my own star, and then see how I feel about that. Do you think that's a good idea? I'm always in favor of people making porn, as long as they post it to Xtube. Hmm, as long as they post it and send you a copy. And send me a copy. You can tell I listen to the show, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that. All right, thank you so much for calling back. Sure thing. I'm a 21-year-old bisexual male, and I've been openly dating both sexes since February 2008, after um, I took a small break from a bad breakup. In the past few months, I've met and dated many interesting people, but for some reason, the acquaintance usually ends, and the other person and myself go our separate ways most of the time. However, there are some times where things seem to click, and I'll continue dating with intentions of having fun and possibly creating something long-term. However, the majority of these skirmishes tend to end up with the other person being overly clingy and troubling before anything stable can begin to form, and I usually terminate a relationship because of this. I think the problem is coming from me somehow and my flirting mannerisms. Most most of these people, predominantly guys, um, tend to say things like, I think we're going to hit it off, right, or I think you're the one. I don't know if what I said was correct and I am flirting in the wrong way and then leading them on just to let them down when things begin to heat up or if it's some other inner problem with myself. Um, any help at all would be appreciated. Okay, sex bomb voice guy, you are the common denominator here, right? Right? All these guys are having the same reaction. You know, people that you are you condescend to see more than once or twice suddenly want to love you a long time, they become really clingy. So knowing that, going in, you either, if you're not at all interested in any sort of long-term romantic attachment at this stage in your life, you need to not see people more than once or twice. You need to seek out people 
who are only interested in what you're interested in, and they're out there. And when people who are only interested in what you're interested in, which is short-term NSA, are always in the situation where the people that they've you know, condescended to fuck once or twice are falling in love with them, that always leads me to suspect that there's something about your ego that is prompting you to choose people who will fall in love with you, so then you can have the ego boost of getting to cast them aside. So it's not really a problem, perhaps, that you... You know, all these guys are in love with you. Oh, my God, it's so awful. There's a solution to that. Don't see guys more than once or twice if you're not interested in anything long-term. Or be really upfront about where you're at. And then the very first sign of clingy bullshit, all you have to say is, you knew going in that I'm not looking for that at all. So knock it off or I'm out. And then go, frankly. You know? Go. Go and find some guys who want what you want. Because there's tons of you out there. You are... And, and what you want is common. Very, very common. All right, we are careening toward the end of this program, but first, uh, some feedback. Um, hi, I've actually not got a question. I'm 21 years old. I don't have any particular problems because I've never had sex in my entire life. But I'm... I just finished listening to your latest podcast and there was some snarky comments about dreadlocks and hygiene. If someone's dreadlocks smell bad, they're doing it wrong. You can wash them. <laughs> you should wash them pretty much every time you shower. I have dreadlocks and they smell fantastic. Anyway, Dan, I absolutely love your show. Um, and perhaps I'll call you when I get a problem. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right. We have a tie here for sexy voices on the show today. The bye guy with all the guys in love with him, sexy. Your accent, sexy. I'd like to defend myself quickly, if I may. I'm always qualified when I discuss the tech-heavy at-risk youth's dreadlocks uh, as stinky dreadlocks, which implies that there are non-stinky dreadlocks out there. Otherwise, I wouldn't need to qualify it with stinky dreadlocks. I could just say dreadlocks, and everyone understand that they stink. But I'm not saying that because I actually don't believe that all dreadlocks stink. Only stinky dreadlocks stink. And the tech-heavy at-risk youth, I'm sorry to say, have particularly stinky dreadlocks. I'm calling about uh, the fellow in episode 96 who uh, was, was a, a stay-at-home or mostly stay-at-home dad who was freaking out because his marriage was ended. Um, I'm a 47-year-old man uh, in my third marriage, uh, in my third marriage that has produced offspring. The first two were 12 and 14 years, respectively. Um, and um, both of my prior marriages, when they ended, I thought the world was ending. And... Um, in both cases, when they were really over, I felt tremendous relief because I was hanging on for dear life. And so I would advise that fella or anyone else, and, and this is something you sort of hit on, but you didn't really stress it, that at least for us here in the uh, developed podcast listening uh iPod-carrying world, um, 
the end of the world is never really as bad as you think. I mean, in Darfur, probably the end of the world, it really is the end of the world. But here, uh, the end of the world is often uh, a, a great new start. And, um, and unless you've been, I guess, I guess, I mean, I took shit really, really seriously when I was in my 20s and 30s, but uh, now I take shit a lot less seriously. The world has ended so many times for me at this point that I just can't get too excited about the end of the world anymore. And my advice is failure is an option, and it's not really a bad one. Um, go ahead and fail. Uh, you know, set yourself free. And, um, and uh, life often gets better. That's all. You're welcome for the advice. You're welcome for the podcast. And we want to thank everybody that calls in with updates and uh, feedback for other listeners. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you'd like to record a question for a future show, try to keep it under a minute or two and leave us your number in case we want to call you back. Three weeks until the election. Three weeks. If you haven't given some money, give some money. If you aren't registered to vote, it's too late. Fuck you in most states. Uh... Not some other states. Go register to vote. There's time. Uh, and then fucking vote in three weeks. Jesus Christ, people. Fucking vote. The future's at stake. Talk to you next week.